I love that song. Ever since I heard that bumper for the first time, I wanted to download it. I found out this week it's actually sung by all Wooddale musicians that have played and produced that song, which makes me all the more impressed with it. But uh, I hope you have enjoyed this series. We're in our third and final week of Won't You Be My Neighbor. If you've missed any of the prior weeks, I want to encourage you Go online and watch Pastor Dale's messages. They have been inspiring. And I hope that uh, as a result of this series that you're going to be more intentional in your neighborhoods and that you're going to be people who try to do exactly what it is that we're describing through this sermon series. So I grew up playing Little League Baseball. Some of you played that as well. My first year of Little League Baseball, though, wasn't T-ball and it wasn't coach pitch. No, it was right to the big time for me. I started Little League Baseball in the year that kids started throwing the balls at their peers, all right? And so I got to my first practice and I had been placed on the beef realty team. Now in the town that I grew up in, local businesses sponsored the Little League teams, and the Beef Realty team was really the team of St. Charles All-Stars. They had won the league the year before. They didn't know it was going to hit them when this guy joined their team, all right? And so we get to the, I get to the first practice, and our coach had decided that his son was going to be our star pitcher. And so his son was out there, and he was throwing balls to the guys who were coming up to the plate, and I got up to the plate at my first uh, game, and I looked a little bit like I do in this picture. I was holding the bat awkwardly, didn't quite know what I was doing in a batter's box, and the, the kid winds up at the first pitch. It is a perfect strike. I blink, and the ball is by me. I'm like, what just happened? I've never seen a spherical object move so fast in my life. And so I said, okay, I got to do better with the second pitch. And so I, I get to the bat for the second pitch and the same thing happens. And by this point, I realize that ball is flying and I'm beginning to get a little afraid of the baseball. And I think I've got to get out of this box quickly or I'm going to leave my dinner on the catcher's uniform. All right. And so freaking out a little bit here. The next pitch comes and I don't want to strike out. I mean, he has thrown two perfect strikes. And so I decide I'm going to, I'm going to begin my swing even before the pitch starts. 
And so I look like the most ridiculous batter of all time, swinging before the pitch is even coming. And as the pitch begins to come, I realize that this one's not going over the plate. This one is headed directly for my face, all right? And so then um, the ball takes a drop right before it gets to me. I'm so far into my swing, I can't avoid it. And the ball hits me right in my bicep muscle. And I have the stitches of the baseball on my bicep for the remainder of that season. I'm in incredible pain, and I I fell to the ground. And I know Tom Hanks says there's no crying in baseball, but I cried. I mean, I just wept there on the field, and I felt like such an idiot in front of all the guys on my championship team. And I stood up, and I looked at the pitcher, and he just had this smirk in his face, like he was so proud of what he had just done. And and I looked at his dad, the coach, and I'm like, aren't you going to do something about this? And his dad is just laughing his head off. And so I began to take the walk of shame back to the dugout when one of my teammates says, you got hit by the ball, you get to go to first base, Schulenberg. And so I went over to first base, and I stood there, not aware of any of the rules of baseball, and wondering what in the world am I doing on this team? And for the remainder of that season, I was afraid to swing the bat. <laughs> like, I didn't swing, literally, for the entire season. I would stand in the, in the plate, and if any ball came close, I was hopping out of the batter's box. And because it was kid pitch, yeah, I had a 0, zero, zero batting average, but I was, had an on-base average of like 500, because none of them could pitch the ball, all right? They were all wild. And so um, our team was good, despite the kid with the zero, zero, zero batting average. And we got to the championship game. And it was one of these moments that kids have dreams about. It was the bottom of the ninth. The bases were loaded. We were down by two. And I was the only player in our team that could go up to the plate. Our coach had used all the substitutions. You were required to play every player on your team. And the coach just looks at me like, oh, no, season's over. And he says, Schulenberg, just swing the bat. Swing the bat. And I couldn't swing the bat. And the next three pitches I saw were strikes right down the center of the plate. And I struck out to end the season. My coach disgusted with me and the elephant tears coming out of my eyes once again. My first year of Little League Baseball was bookended by episodes of tears. And if there was one word that summarized baseball my first year, it was the word fear. So like I said, we're in the third week of a series entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And last week, Pastor Dale preached a marvelous message where he talked about one of the barriers to getting to know our neighbors, and that was the time barrier. So many of us are so busy in our lives, and we're running from one thing to another to another, and the thought of being people who love and get to know our neighbors is just kind of one more thing and a checklist And it becomes a difficult thing for us to really live out. And Pastor Dale gave some really practical tips for how do we deal with the time barrier. Today we're going to talk about the fear barrier. And before I get too deep into the message, I want to read a quote to you that Pastor Dale read last week from Brian Mavis, who is one of the authors of the book, The Neighboring Church, another great book. And he just simply says this, in this life, we can only do a few things really well. I think it's a good idea to make certain that one of those things is what Jesus says is most important. 
Now, how many of you would say that's probably an important thing? I want to know what Jesus says is most important, and I want to live that. Now, you're the 1130 service. Everybody else, I said, this is kind of like a, a, a fictional poll. Let's do it. How many of you would say, I want to do the things that are most important to Jesus? All right. I was thinking maybe 100%, but okay, so we're at 87. The other 13% of you, we have a prayer time after the service. I'd encourage you to come on up. We're going to talk about that, all right? Listen, we ought to be a church that wants to passionately, as children of God, live out the desires of God. And we don't have to wonder what Jesus' greatest desires are. It's given to us in Scripture. There was a, a, a man who was an expert in Jewish law who wanted to trick Jesus. And he came to Jesus with a question. And the question was simply, what is the greatest commandment of them all? And he reasoned, if Jesus says the wrong thing, maybe the crowds will turn against Jesus. He's so popular right now. Maybe he'll, he'll, he'll slip up. Maybe he'll, he'll, he'll give one commandment that much of the crowd just can't get around. But Jesus answered the question masterfully. When asked, what is the greatest commandment of them all? Jesus responded, well, that's, and I, I picture him saying, well, that's easy, but he didn't. He just says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. And he went on to say, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And as Wooddale Church, I think we want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We, we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. But if truth be told, many times that's not the true condition of our hearts and our lives. Like if our children or our grandchildren were asked about us and they said, so do grandma and grandpa or do mom and dad love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? I wonder what our kids and grandkids would say about us. And if we were honest, what would, what would we say? And sometimes it is that time barrier that Dale talked about last week that gets in the way. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes we're afraid of failure. We're afraid, like, if I get to know my neighbors and I'm supposed to share my faith with them, what if I screw up? What if I say the wrong things? Or, or maybe it's the fear of rejection. What if my neighbors don't want to get to know me? What if I try my best to get to know my neighbors and it's just one more relationship where, where I'm rejected? Maybe it's the fear of overcommitment. Maybe there's just too much stuff on your calendar and you're afraid that investing in your neighbors and living out the priorities of Jesus will inconvenience you too much. I want to suggest today that fear is one of the most powerful weapons of our enemy. Fear can stop us from opening up ourselves to others. Some of us live lives of quiet isolation because we are so afraid of others getting to know the real us. Fear can convince us that God couldn't possibly use someone like us to accomplish his great purposes. Fear can convince us that God couldn't possibly love us because there is some deficiency in me that God is somehow not going to be able to get past. Or I have somehow sinned so much, so much greater than anybody in the history of the world that I'm like the one sinner that God can't forgive and that God can't love. Fear can convince us that our neighbors don't really want anything to do with us. Fear can absolutely cripple us. It is one of the devil's most powerful tools. But I want to suggest today that you and I 
fully alive to who God has created us to be, you and I, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, are one of God's most powerful tools in this generation. And I would much rather be a person who is fully alive to who God made me to be and is empowered by his spirit than somebody who lives my life in constant fear. The Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about fear and, and, and he mentored many people in his life. And one of the people he mentored was a young pastor named Timothy. And if you read First and Second Timothy, you get these, these hints in these two little letters that Timothy was somebody who struggled with anxiety. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, First and Second Timothy are great books to read. And, and to Timothy, Paul gives some instruction. He says simply this, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that we have a God who, who said, listen, fear isn't a gift that I'm giving to you. I'm giving you me. I'm enough. I'm enough. You plus me is enough to accomplish what it is that I've called you to do. There's a great Old Testament story that illustrates this fact. And it's, an, it's, it's a story that's found in the book of the Bible that I know for many of you is your favorite book of the Bible, the book of Numbers, okay? And so in Numbers chapter 13 is a story, and it's a story that many are familiar with. It's a story that has some espionage in it. It's a spy story. It's got adventure. It's got really important decisions that have to be made. It's got heroes and villains, and it's a great story. And the story begins this way in Numbers chapter 13. It's with God speaking to Moses. And it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out. And I want you to read the rest of this sentence with me, okay? You can end at the end of the sentence. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. And you notice something there? What does God say he's doing? He's what? giving the land of Canaan to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one of them, a chief among them. And then he goes on, uh, we read in verse three, so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were the heads of the people of Israel. So God makes a promise to the children of Israel via Moses, hey, I'm gonna give you the land of Canaan. There is no question about it. Now, just for our context, the timing on this is important because this is months after God has delivered the children of Israel from the hand of slavery at the hands of the Egyptians, okay? So they've already seen God work. This is a generation that is familiar with God working in miraculous ways and showing his power over a much more powerful army. So Moses obeys. He gathers the leaders together. There's 12 men from 12 different tribes. And I think he has a conversation with them that's like this. Hey, guys, God, God's revealed the next part of his plan. We're going to move into the promised land. And I'm going to give you the incredible opportunity to spy it out ahead of everybody else. You get to go in. You get to do some recognizance. You get to spy. You get to check out the fruit of the land. In fact, bring some of the fruit back with you so you can pump up the people about the land that they're going to see. And when you come back, you ought to be the greatest cheerleaders to the vision of God for our people. And so the people obey. 12 men spend the next 40 days in the land of Canaan, again, representing 12 different tribes of Israel. And while they're in enemy territory, something begins to happen. The majority of the men begin to believe that 
the instruction from God was either misunderstood by Moses or by them or that God is somehow not powerful enough to come through this time. And only two of the 12 men take God at his word, believe that God can do what God has called them to do. And so they come back and they give a report beginning in verse 27 of Numbers 13. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore. And it is indeed a bountiful country, a land that flows with milk and honey. Here's the kind of fruit it produces. So they bring some grapes back from this land and they show it is, it's incredible. It's everything that God said that it would be. And so the report starts out really great. This is, this is exactly what God said they would see. But verse 28 starts, the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea along the Jordan Valley. And so now the excuses start to roll out. Oh, God couldn't possibly give this land to us. There's giants in the land. It's gonna to be too difficult. We're fighting against multiple armies who have superior technology. There is no way we're gonna win this battle. And I love a character that we get to see kind of introduced to us in verse 30, a man named Caleb. And it says, but Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. When I'm on a team, I want a Caleb with me. When I'm on a team, I want that person who believes that when God has given a group of people a vision, that God can certainly accomplish it. When I'm in a church and I see that God has given a church a vision, I want to see a church that believes that, a church full of Caleb's and Joshua's who we'll see later, who will say, God, certainly you can do what you've called us to do. Last time I preached here, I said that one of the reasons I came back to Wooddale Church was Vision 22, which is simply to impart the hope of the gospel to 700,000 people here, near, and far by the year 2022 and to create a clear pathway to spiritual maturity. And I can hardly believe I said it's simply to do that because that is a huge God-sized vision. And the good news that we have heard over and over again these past few months is that we're not even halfway through and over 400,000 people have had the hope of the gospel imparted to them through the ministries and partnerships of this church. And there have been over 5,500 churches that have been planted. And in both traditional services, they were cheering by this point, guys. They were pumped because God is at work and he's doing it through you, his people, and through his power in you. And I'm so happy you started to cheer there because I want Caleb's. I don't want the 10 in the majority opinion who sit there and go, but there's giants in the land. Yeah, but God's on our side. And so often we act like the majority opinion in this story. And because it was the majority opinion and because the crowds listened to the majority instead of listening to the voice of God, tragic things begin to happen to the children of Israel. Look at verse 31. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. Notice that word. 
They spread this bad report. They were actively involved in being adversaries to the plan of God. That is not a spot we want to find ourselves in. They were actively spreading this negative report. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And next to them, they add to the story, next to them we felt like grasshoppers and that's what they thought we were. Like they could read the mind of the giants in the land. Like I wonder if the giants even saw them. If they did, they were horrible spies, all right? They may not have even known they were there. Twelve men went to spy on Cain and only two saw it as God did a land which he was giving to the children of Israel. When there are giants in the land, there is certainly going to be some fear and anxiety and trepidation. The Israelites let fear get the best of them and there would be long-lasting consequences for that. But the reality is you and I have fears too. It's not a person on earth that doesn't deal with fear from time to time. Some of you are fearing going back to the office tomorrow. Some of you are fearing going back to your neighborhood where there's a relationship that's been frayed with a neighbor. Some of you are fearful about a relationship in your family. We've all had things in our life that we are so afraid of that like the children of Israel, we become paralyzed. Like 10-year-old Brian on a baseball diamond, we are afraid to take a swing for God. And what it does is shows an axiom that is true for all people at all time, and that is that fear can keep us from doing what God has laid out for us to do. And if you're a note taker, I want you to write that down. And I want you to ask yourself an important question this week. Is there something that God has called me to do that I'm letting fear get in the way of? Is there something that, that fear is, is winning the day instead of, of God in my life? Fear stopped a group of spies from believing that God could deliver the land of Canaan to the Israelites, and it can stop a group of 21st century believers from believing that God can accomplish the great commission in our lifetime through his people. You see, in Matthew 28, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he said to them, I want you to be my witnesses, and I want you to go all over the world, and I want you to make disciples, and I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. But he doesn't end there. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As a pastor, I oftentimes have people that will come to me and say, I just feel so distant from God. I've had some bad things happen in my life and I just wonder where is God in the midst of these things? Or maybe they, they have some other excuse about why they feel distant from God. And occasionally, if I have a relationship with the person where I can ask the question, I'll say, tell me a little bit about how you're involved in making more disciples for Jesus Christ. Because it is the priority that he's given to everyone who is a child of his. It's not the discipleship pastor's job or the senior pastor's or you know, your life group leader's job. It's all of our job to be involved in this. And here's the deal. When we're involved in God's disciple-making movement in the 21st century, God's given us a promise. And the promise is he is there right with us. Just as he says, I'm giving the land of Canaan to the Israelites. So God says, when you'll be my witnesses, I'm right there with you. So what is it that stops us from believing him? 
What's the fear that has somehow gotten in the way? Is it the fear of rejection? Is it the fear that I'm worried about what people might think about me? Is, is it the fear that I'm going to be looked at as a Jesus freak or somebody who's out of touch? Is it the fear that I might offend somebody? Fear can get, us, get in the way of us doing what God's called us to do. For some of us, it's the fear of our neighbors, our, especially neighbors that maybe don't look like us or have come to uh, our, our neighborhood from a different part of the world. I had somebody ask me a few years ago, aren't you afraid to live in the Twin Cities? I said, I grew up in Chicago. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not afraid of living in the Twin Cities. I feel so safe here. But they said, no, seriously, aren't you afraid? Because you have all those Somali folks who've moved there. And aren't you afraid of radical Islamic terrorism? And I said, oh, friend, no, I'm not afraid of my Somali neighbors. I love my Somali neighbors. My life is richer because of my Somali neighbors. And I said, let me tell you a story. Several years ago, my, my, I was the youth pastor here at Wooddale, senior high pastor. And we would take our students on mission trips all over the world. And as part of the prep training, we'd go down to Minneapolis to a neighborhood called Eat Street, where we would go to different ethnic restaurants. And one of the restaurants we went to was a Somali restaurant. And I developed a friendship with the owner and his brother. And over the years, I would continually go back to his restaurant and just get to know him better. And eventually, my wife, who's a much better neighbor than I am, said to me, Brian, why don't we invite our friends over to our home for Thanksgiving? I bet they've never had a Thanksgiving meal, but they'd enjoy the opportunity to, to share Thanksgiving with an American family. And so I did, and it took them about a tenth of a second to say, yes, we'd love to come. And they didn't have a car, so I drove into the city to pick them up, and uh, it was Thanksgiving, and Somalis obviously don't celebrate Thanksgiving, so his restaurant was open. And he said, can we stop at my restaurant on the way to your house? We, wanna, we don't want to come empty-handed. We've ordered some food to bring to your Thanksgiving celebration. And tray after tray after tray after tray of delicious Somali food was added to our buffet table. And my little Swedish aunt, who'd never had any kind of Somali food in her life, had her rice pudding next to the sambusa. And she's like, oh, this is so good. Nobody wanted to eat the bland turkey in our house. And my Somali friends who'd never had stuffing were like, this is the greatest food ever. So we shared our, our meals and our customs and our traditions, and they shared their stories of immigration and what it was like to live in a refugee camp in Kenya before escaping to Sweden and eventually to Washington, D.C., and then here to the Twin Cities. They had the opportunity to hear us as followers of Jesus talk about the difference that God had made in our life over the past year. In our family, we like to talk about what we're thankful for at Thanksgiving, like so many other Christian families. And we gave God praise for what he had done in our life. And I listened to that. And I didn't preach at him. I didn't share the gospel that day. I did pray for our meal. And I prayed in Jesus' name. It would be seven years before I had the opportunity to actually share the gospel with my Somali friend. Because I wanted to be sensitive to the Lord's leading and the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. My relationship with him is one of the great gifts in my life. Some of us are afraid of neighbors that look different than us. Some of us are afraid of, uh, to form a relationship with a neighbor who doesn't share their values. Some are afraid to knock on the door of a home that looks like it isn't being taken care of because you worry that you're gonna get stuck doing yard work. Some of you are worried you might find yourself inconvenienced. Some are afraid of the gay couple down the street 
or the home that seems to have cars coming at all times of day. Some are afraid of the neighbor that looks like they never groom themselves. Some are afraid of the neighborhood gossip, worried that you're gonna be on the other end of that gossip. Some are afraid of the family that always seems to be at the center of drama. And some are afraid of the wealthy couple that seems to live in a different economic stratosphere. I could go on and on, but the Great Commission doesn't tell us to love only neighbors that look like us or believe the same things that we believe, share our values, or are on the same economic spectrum that we are. The Great Commandment tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and there is no qualifier to that statement. None. How are we doing? You see, fear distorts our perspective And in the story of the spies of the Canaanite land, fear had so distorted the perspective of the 10. And then like a cancer, fear spread throughout the entire Israelite encampment. And so for 40 years, a generation wanders a wilderness, 40 wasted years. Nobody in that generation would have the privilege of entering the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb And so you fast forward the story 40 years and you see just how much fear had distorted their perspective. Now a new generation has arisen and the children and the grandchildren of the first children of Israel have now taken leadership positions. And they go to the old men now, Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb give very similar instructions to the instruction that Moses gave. And they say, guys, we want you to go on a recognizance mission. We want you to go in the land. We want you to spy on it. We want you to see the fruit of the land. We want you to come back. And we want you to tell the people what you see. And you kind of can see the tension in the story. And you wonder, are the children going to make the same mistakes that the parents made? And God gives them this beautiful gift in the form of a woman named Rahab, a sinful prostitute who lives in enemy territory, who understood God better than the ancestors of these children. In Joshua 2, 9 through 11, 40 years after our original story, we see what happens next. And Rahab is speaking and she says, I know, I know the Lord has given you this land. We are afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror of you, even the giants. So she goes on to say, why? In verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sahan and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. I love verse 11. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. And the verse ends, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Fear had so distorted the perspective of the Israelite people. They thought the giants in the land would destroy them, but the truth was the giants in the land were afraid of the Israelites' God. Has fear ever distorted your perspective? Has fear stopped you from getting to know the neighbors that you live near? Has fear stopped you from sharing your faith? Like the Israelites, God gives you some promises concerning sharing his truth. And one of them is simply this, that we don't need to fear when we encounter people. We need to be prepared to share the reason for the hope that we have inside of us. And that, those aren't my words. Those are words that come from Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples. And in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 16, Peter wrote, Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? 
But even if you suffer for what is doing right, God will reward you for it. So don't, be, don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Might you go through some persecution if you obey God? Yeah, you might. You might go through some suffering. The man who wrote this was crucified upside down for his faith in Jesus, and yet he considered no suffering that he underwent, something that was too much because of the cost that Christ had paid on his behalf. He wanted everyone to know Jesus. You see, Peter was convinced, and I am too, that God has given us everything that we need to be a good neighbor. God, God has, has, has equipped us with his spirit. Jesus plus nothing is enough for us to reach our neighbors for Christ. In the first week of the series, Dale encouraged you to take this block map and we produced this in our, in our, in our service handouts that week. And we asked you, of the eight neighbors who live closest to your house, who do you, who do you know? And he gave you three practical steps to take that week. Number one was to just pray for the opportunity to get to know your neighbors. So the average Christian today knows less than three of the eight neighbors that live closest to them. To look for ways to get to serve them and when God gives you the opportunity to share your testimony. We ask you to begin to pray about those things in week one of the series. There's a story in Jesus' life where Jesus got to know some people that others had no interest in knowing. As much of Jesus' ministry takes place at parties in the New Testament. And in Luke 7, we have another example of Jesus at a party. He's invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee named Simon. And in that story, there's a woman who is an immoral woman from the city. Everybody knows her reputation. And women didn't come to parties where men were present and sit at the table with them. And, and, and she bursts into the house and she brings this alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. And she is weeping in the presence of Jesus, recognizing her, her need for, for him. Her tears are falling at his feet and she starts to just wipe his feet with her hair. It is a bizarre scene at this party, a scene nobody expected, especially at the home of a city leader. And Simon gets snarky. Simon begins to, to, to speak about this woman and about Jesus. And in verse 39, he says, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. What I love about Jesus is sinners don't scare Jesus. He came for those who were lost and needed him. You see, Jesus often made religious people uncomfortable because of the type of people that he spent time with. I've got a question for you today. When's the last time that you were accused of spending too much time around the wrong kind of people? The kind of people that make religious people uncomfortable. Wouldn't it be great if some of our grandmas and grandpas you know, heard from their kids at Thanksgiving, you know, Grandma, you're really spending too much time with a, a tough crowd. You know, I'm not sure you should be spending time with those people. Because Jesus, again, wasn't afraid of these people. In fact, to Simon in verse 44, uh, he kind of rebukes him. The Bible says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus' question to Simon was, do you see this woman? And I want to ask you today, do you see the people in your neighborhood? This block map isn't just something that was created because, you know, we, we wanted to be cute in November. It's something we really wanted us as a church to wrestle with. God, how well do we know these neighbors? 
do we see the people that you've put into our life? You see, you living in your, your neighborhood wasn't, wasn't a surprise to God. It's not like you and your realtor got together and found a house in the neighborhood and God was like, wow, I can't believe they chose that house. God is so intimately involved in that. And when you entered your neighborhood, I think he's like, yes, the Johnson family has moved to that neighborhood. And with them moving in, they take me. And this neighborhood can be transformed if they will live the life God's called them to live. So I preached the same series at a, at a church I pastored formerly. And I was using the block map and my teenage son, Zach, says to me, hey, dad, how well do you know our neighbors? Totally calls his dad out on it. Nothing worse than a pastor getting called out by his teenage son. I'm like, well, I think I know like six out of eight. And he's like, okay, name him, dad. And I think it was four out of eight that I really knew. And I'd lived in my neighborhood for... 15 years at the time, because neighbors move in and out, but most of ours have stayed the same. While I was preaching that series, one of my best friends was dying. He's a man in my church who was kind of like my Minnesota dad. Ed was a guy who came to faith later in his life, and he was really concerned because his wife, to his knowledge, wasn't a believer, and he wasn't sure of the spiritual condition of his two sons. And every time we'd go out to lunch, again, every 10 days or so, he'd say, would you pray for my family? Would you pray for my boys? And when Ed was dying during this series, his sons called me on the phone and said, Dad's gotten to the point where he needs to go into hospice care. And it's too hard for us to tell him. He listens to you. Will you tell Dad that he needs to go into hospice? And I said, sure, I'll be right over. And while I was going over there, I remembered one of his sons lived in Eden Prairie. And I decided that I'd ask him what neighborhood he lived in. So I said, where, where do you live in Eden Prairie? He says, oh, I live over by Homeward Hills Park. I said, no way, I live over by Homeward Hills Park. Like where? He says, oh, you know, you go up Silverwood Drive and then you take a left on Chesholm Lane. And I said, stop right there. I live on Chesholm Lane. He's like, no way. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm the house with the little free library in the front of it. And he says, I walk my dog past that house all the time. I check out books sometimes from your little library. I said, that's so cool. And then he says, in fact, I think we might be neighbors, like literally neighbors. Now again, I'm preaching this series, all right? And I'm like, no way. And he's like, yeah, I live in the cul-de-sac behind Chesholm Lane. And there's a picture on the screen here. Like every winter when the first snow comes, I love getting these beautiful pictures of snow. And his house is the one right over here that you can barely see between the trees. So technically, our yards touch each other. He'd be this guy in my block map, all right? But I'd never seen him. I'd never talked with him. And I would find out soon that, oh, he loved Jesus. And his life had been transformed by the Lord. And it was a reminder to me of the importance of building a relational bridge. As we end our time here today, I wanna encourage you, and as we end this series, to be people who will pray, God, help me to be the best neighbor my neighbors have ever had. Lord, help me to be a neighbor that will bless my neighbors. Last week, we had a handout in our worship folder and it simply said, we are for being great neighbors. You say, well, I wasn't here last week, Brian, so I don't have that handout. Well, if you go to our website, wooddale.org, on the first page is a little thing that you can press that says Adopt 7. And if you'll click that, you'll find all the resources from this series, including this one. And inside this resource is just a little acronym that says, Bless Your Neighbors. And we want to close this series with a challenge for you to bless your neighbors. Bless their socks off. B stands for um, being people who begin with prayer. 
may you be somebody who will begin to pray for your neighbors, walk your neighborhood. And you know, you're gonna know how to pray for them a lot better if you do the second thing, and that's listen more than you talk. Look for opportunities to ask questions. And as your neighbors reveal things about themselves to you, don't be a gossip. Be somebody who prays. And then we wanna encourage you to eat with them. Look for an opportunity to share a meal. Christmas is right around the corner. This month, maybe that meal is cookies and tea or hot chocolate. Maybe uh, you're gonna invite your neighbors over for a block party in the summer. Look for opportunities to, to tear down walls through a meal. S stands for serve your neighbors. And we're in a great time to do that because there's another S word that ends with now that's coming soon, snow, all right? And maybe snow would be a way to help your neighbors out. Help shovel or, 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 or snow blow their, their, their driveway. Figure out some ways that you can serve. Maybe you've got a couple who are uh, brand new parents and they've got a little baby and they don't live by family and you could, you could love them by watching their child and giving them a date night. And finally, share your story. Share the difference that Jesus Christ has made in your life, but do it at the right time. It may be that you need to wait seven years before you share the full story. Or it may be that you need to begin with a simple, simple invitation to say, hey, we've got a great Christmas concert that's coming up. I'd love to invite you there, and that might be the beginning of a bridge for you to share the difference Jesus has made in your life. Listen, as pastors, we want you to pray for us. We don't want to preach about this stuff and not live it. And so would you pray for the pastoral staff and know that as pastors, we're praying for you. Because we think if Wooddale Church was known for being the people that were the best neighbors in every neighborhood, that God would begin to change this world through you. Let me pray for you now. God, thank you so much for uh, this church. Thank you for the difference that you're making through Wooddalers. God, I thank you for the way that so many folks here live their lives in their neighborhood. God, there are many here who could have preached these messages better than me and Dale. They could have come up here and shared so many stories of how you have powerfully worked through them to reach their neighbors for Jesus Christ. God, we pray that that would be such a common occurrence around here. God, that we would be known as a church who are full of people who love you more than anything else in the world. And Lord, that we would follow the second commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Lord, that you would just be glorified and honored through us and God that we would be people who make disciples who make disciples we love you so much in Jesus name amen